what a day um, as, as, a, as a church family, as a nation, 9-11, um, 21 years ago. Do you remember where you were? And it's, it's not only a startling, sobering reminder um, of what happened at that moment, but if there's one thing I gleaned each time that we remember what happened at that, on that day, we not only remember those who get lost their lives and their family and remember and celebrate them, but there's something profound that was birthed out of that tragedy and the unity that we shared as a nation was even when I was um, in high school, I remember something unique, something that seemed to bridge gaps of division and discord, something that the common challenge seemed to strengthen um, us as a nation. And as we talk today about the power of relationship and what it ultimately means to be better together as a family, um, what a unique day to celebrate um, and to not only celebrate what God can do, but to remember um, what happened on that day. I'm, I'm fascinated um, every time we gather as a family for one particular reason, uh, I'm fascinated by what God chooses to do in our corporate gatherings and what the Holy Spirit chooses to do in us. And if you're here for the first time today, I, I want to just pause and say, we're so glad that you're with us today. And to those that are joining us online for the first time, we're so glad that you're with us. And a hello, um, a shout out to our family at SCI Chester in partnership with God Behind Bars. Can we show them some love? Clap for them. The scriptures uh, teach us in Proverbs 27, verse 17, it says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And when I grew up, uh, my father had a business, uh, a construction business, and in the shop um, that we were not permitted to be in, we would always go. And, um, and there was a grinding wheel in the, in the shop, and it was for the, the blades on the mower and you turn it on and that thing would just hum. It would be so fast. And I thought it would be fascinating to get a rock and uh, just begin to shape the rock. Why not? You know, and uh, one of the things I learned, not only how quickly can you lose your skin, but um, on your fingers, but the amount of heat and friction that is produced um, doing something like that. And I remember sharpening a, a set of blades. My father actually provided supervision that time. And, um, and I remember watching the blade just, you know, go from that dark blue kind of steel looking color to just this bright, vibrant red. It almost was yelling, touch me, you know, but you didn't want to do that. And I realized um, when, I, when I read that passage the first time, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another, I remember thinking to myself, well, I don't like that. I wouldn't choose that. I don't think that I would like to um, be associated with that verse. But the truth is, a healthy, honest relationship will educate you and equip you like nothing else will. If we understood what relationships really looked like and the byproduct of what would what happens in relationships, if we really understood that, I don't think we'd be as discouraged as we are. I don't think we would quit as often as we quit. 
I don't think we would throw our hands up and say, something's wrong. This is just not meant to be. If someone told you at the beginning of every one of your relationships that there's going to be tension, trial, frustration, disappointment, I know it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? <laughs> really what I'm telling you is that whenever you or I are involved in relationships, someone is left feeling slighted. Someone feels like you failed them, like you didn't do enough. You, you maybe did too much, whatever it is. And you'd be like, well, why is that? It's because of our humanity. We're prone to fail. We're prone to not do things right, to upset people. And, and if someone told you that at the beginning of it, I don't know, how, how would you feel? I remember getting ready to start our marriage. I went to my father right the week before we were getting ready to get married. And I said, dad, I'm ready, right? And he looked at me and smiled and says, Son, you're not ready. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, well, this is horrible advice to tell me a week before I'm getting married, you're not ready. But what he was simply saying is, you, you're never ready. You're never really ready. It's this idea of like, are you ready for a fight? Are you ready for discord? You may think you are, but until you're in it, you don't really know how you react. But I'll tell you one thing. I was so, I was so encouraged and and strengthen to learn that actually real intimacy and fellowship requires a fight. Somebody say amen. <laughs> Please, somebody. But do you know, you notice if you look at statistics through marriage, 50% of marriages just end in divorce. And people would say, why? Statistics would point in all these different directions, but I would submit to you that it's because um, we don't know how to fight the primary fight, which is not external things, but it's inward things. The greatest victory you'll ever have is not on things on the outside, it's the thing on the inside. It's learning how to love the way that Christ loved. It's learning how to give of yourself to somebody else. The greatest refinement in your life will not be from your boss. It will not be from what everyone else is watching. It will not be in a career, in sports, in academics. It won't be when there are crowds around peering at you, watching to see. It'll be in your private time. It'll be what transpires on the inside and how you decide to, to honor and to respect and to love and to walk in humility before other people. And I know for, for many of us, it's like, wow, that's, it's not that exciting. You know? It's like, is, is that what it really is? There's nothing greater than to do life with people who are running after the things of God. It's, it's, the, greatest, it's the greatest privilege, not only privilege, but it's the greatest refinement and it's the greatest source, I believe, of equipping is when you get to walk out this journey of life with other people who are running after the things of God. And that's ultimately what it means to belong to the family of God. When you said yes to Jesus, some things changed. Some things changed. Some things didn't change. They're in, in process of changing. They are being sanctified. They are being renewed as you would. But, but what changes is now you have a heavenly father, a heavenly father who views you as a son and a daughter. You have a savior and his name is Jesus. You have a, a counselor, the Holy Spirit, who guides and directs you and empowers you to be a witness for Jesus. And you have a new family. You have a new family. And some of you are like, amen. <laughs> and some of you are like, I, I, I like the family I have. Some of you are like, I want to get out of the family I'm in. Some of you are like, I, I want a new family, but I don't know if I want this family. You know, 
And it's like, well, where do I go? And the, the truth is, the process of family is less about what you get from it, but what you can give to it. But in the surrendering of giving to a family, something happens that you get, God gives back to you. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God teaches us that when he's first, he gives back. Now God says you can have it one of two ways. You can run after me and I'll give to you in ways that you could never give to yourself. Now you can try to obtain peace and joy and happiness, thanks, thankfulness, self-control. You can try to, to produce them in your own strength, but it's just a futile effort because you can't produce that. You can only produce what you carry and ultimately what you receive and what we receive from the gifts of the Spirit come from God and come from Him alone. So you can choose to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and then be a beneficiary of receiving what he adds unto you, or you can chase after the things that you want to add unto yourself, but when God is not first, he cannot add to you. I've, I've, I've watched God literally give to people what other people have strived for 30 years to receive like that. And you, you, you talk to me and say, well, how? And they say, only God, only God. I've watched God restore marriages, heal bodies, minds, but only God. So what does it mean to be the family of God? It means that we, in order for us to learn how to live with one another, I believe the expectation needs to be right at the beginning. Like, just in case you are unaware of this, like we are a church filled with a bunch of jacked up people. So if you don't have any problems, you may not like this church. And I'm serious. I'll never forget the one time it was in JMT. It was probably like 10 years ago. Now, some of you have a problem saying jacked up. I know I'm a child of heaven, that I am redeemed by the blood of Jesus. I know I'm heaven bound. I know I'm being redeemed and sanctified. I understand that. But I am mindful of where God has brought me from and that God has brought me from there, that I didn't develop a behavioral modification process through reading God's word. The Holy Spirit enables me, empowers me, strengthens me, the fruits of the Spirit. I don't, I cannot fake it until I make it with that. Fake joy, fake self-control, fake thanksgiving. Oh, I'm so thankful to be here. You know, it's like, no, it's painful. You've seen people like that. I love Jesus. You're like, no, you don't. You know? You're just told to love Jesus, but you really don't. And that's why, that's why the things of God are so dear to me. It's like God does not adjust us from the outside in, it's from the inside out. And that's why some people, when they come to church, are like, oh, I just love the service. It's, you know, I love this service too. I love the gathering of the saints, but I love it for what God does in us and through us. I love that the Holy Spirit takes the foolishness of preaching and he, he deposits stuff in our hearts that refine us with eternity in mind. And sometimes when we leave, we don't even know what we've picked up, but in our spirit, something's changed. Something's different. And the only, usually the way that you can tell when it's different is when you're tested. And then you go, I actually have self-control, you know? How'd that happen? And then you start to see the things that God sees and you become grateful for it. You become thankful for it. And when I say that, that we are, we are, broken people, 
It's with the expectation that how do you respond to people who come to this house and who are far from God? Two quick things. I was 20 years old. I was raised in church, which presents challenges within itself. And I would say to you that the greatest challenge that presents is that you become so familiar with the things of God, you lose reverence for him. The Bible teaches that the only way to walk out your salvation is with fear and trembling before God. When you lose a reverence and a fear of God, you cannot please him. You are building a house on sand. And everything you build will fall without reverence for God. That's why the scripture says the beginning of all wisdom and understanding is the fear of God. And I remember being familiar with the things of God. And that's a dangerous spot, but I remember being raised in church and And it was hard for me at first because I didn't fully understand what was happening. I didn't understand the dynamic of the gathering of the saints. I didn't understand what was going on. Everything on the outside was like, look at that person, look at that person. It was, it was, I I didn't get it. When I went to Virginia Beach, I was, I was 20 years old. And if you were to pull me aside and say, hey, like, do you know Jesus? I'd be like, Ask me what verse you want me to recite, you know? You, t- I want the Roman road? I'll tell you, Romans 3, 28, 6, 23. I'll just quote scripture and I'll tell you. But I knew what to say on the outside, but something wasn't right on the inside. Which seems to suggest to me that you can be present, as Pastor Luis would put it, but not planted. That you can be in an environment of growth, but you, you yourself are not growing. And why? Because I think there's, there's, there needs to be a willingness in your heart to say, no, God, I believe who you are and I'm willing to follow you, which implies, God, I'm willing to walk. And I don't really know what it'll produce, but I'm just trusting that if I follow you, it will yield something in my life. I remember sit, standing in worship and, and um, I was surrounded by people who were passionately worshiping God. And I don't know about you, but when I was like, 17, 18, it was a big deal to lift your hands in worship. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anybody. Okay, so maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't know why, but there's some people in front of me and they're always like worshiping. I'm like, what's wrong with that person? I don't know why they're doing that. Worship and the lifting of our hands is an act of surrender to God. It's an acknowledgement of who he is and we have an awareness of who we are in light of who he is. The creator of the heavens and the earth who spoke galaxies into existence, who formed you in the womb of your mother. When we worship, we're not just singing songs. We are worshiping God, that God. And so to lift our hands is an act of surrender. Well, when I was younger, it was always that awkward, like, you know, you didn't know what to do. You started down here and then you're like, I'm just looking in my pocket, you know. I'm not kidding. It was an awkward thing. And then you have this moment of awareness and realize like, no one cares about what you do. And you're like, wait, am I doing this for the person next to me? For me, it was always like, and some of you are like, why? Um, I love people trying to get theological with why we have the lights down. We have the lights down because it helps you just focus on what happens up here and not on the people next to you. That's all. In case anyone was wondering, that's, that's, all, that's all. Like, we need more light. No, I'd rather have the light in us here than through some candlescent thing, you know? And the, this is why behavior modification and systems and structures and methods don't change. What really brings change is what transpires in the heart. Because you can put on whatever you want to put on in front of people here, but the real you is the you that pulls out of the parking lot. 
and then goes down to the intersection and starts honking your horn <laughs> with a church magnet on the back of your car. We're not giving them out anymore, I'm telling you right now, because I got cut off the other day, and I was like, are you kidding? Oh, no. You know? <laughs> My daughter's like, Dad, look at the magnet. You know? It's like, don't, don't look, don't look, don't look. And I, I realized that, that even in, in moments of, of awkwardness, of not knowing how to lift my hands, when I was surrounded by people at 20 who were lifting their hands unashamed, they could care less that I was next to them. How do I know that? Because they're like, their armpits were in my face. We were screwies like this, worshiping. And I was like, what is wrong with these people? Like, worship is going to be here next week, all right? It's not the last time, you know, we're going to worship. And you're like, well, it could be. You never know when it's your time. The Bible doesn't promise us tomorrow. It doesn't promise us an hour. It actually defines the shortness of our life as a vapor, here today and gone tomorrow. And I realized for the first time I was surrounded by people who were passionate about God, but I carried none of that conviction in myself. You see, you can't live on your parents' revelation of God. You can't live on your grandparents' revelation of God. You need to have your own revelation of God. And that own revelation of God will lead you to a place to worship and surrender things like nothing else will. I was preaching at JMT. It was probably like seven or eight years ago. And I remember, I, 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 I think I yelled more um, when I was uh, just starting to preach. Um, I love T.D. Jakes, and I just tried to scream, but just didn't come out the same. And, um, but I remember preaching, and, and I was kind of going for it, and I was like preaching this point. I was like, this is good. In my head, I'm like, this is really good. And like, there was like a few random claps, you know, like, oh, nice try. Try harder, you know what I mean? And, and then all of a sudden, someone stands up in the fifth row, and was like, that was so bleep, you know, and like good, but they didn't know how to describe good. They just used a word they shouldn't have used in church. And so in my head, I want to say to him, thank you, you know? But I didn't, want to, I didn't want to affirm that behavior, you know. And, and I remember when that happened, something really strange happened. At the end of the service, um, the person was embarrassed. They were new to church. They, you know, they had a lot going on. They had an addiction issue and a lot of different things in their life. And you could tell that the person was embarrassed after they did it. They were reacting out of emotion. And, and at the end of the service, I, I had a few conversations with people. And what startled me was the reaction that Christians had to someone who was unsaved. And like, I just want to tell you, like, you'll never impact sin, sinful people or people far from God if you're intimidated by it. Like, like, thank God he is not like so ashamed of us because we walk in sin that he wants nothing to do with us. The Bible says that in his demonstration of love towards us, that while we were still sinners, broken, separated, he died for us. He died for us. I remember being startled to the point of saying, I do not want to pastor a church that does not know how to meet people where they are. But at the same place, I don't want people to be so comfortable where they are, they refuse to move. Like, well, no, I'm just happy. If anyone takes my seat, I will be upset, you know? It's like, you don't have a seat, you know? This is a family. This is a family. And, and you, to think of it as, as in such a way that I hope, I hope there's, Room for all of us to find people in our world who are far from God and bring them to a family gathering where they don't feel judged for their brokenness, where they can meet someone who can redeem it. Fellowship and real intimate relationships require a fight. 
They require a fight. And I suppose I say that to you on the front end in this conversation about we're better together because better together doesn't mean easier together, but it means better together. It means that if we can learn how to love like Jesus loved, then we will be refined in an image of Christ. There's one passage of scripture before we go to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at the early formation of the church before we get there. Um, In John chapter 15, Jesus tells the the disciples, um, I have a new command I'm going to give you. And this new command is to love one another. Now, it wasn't a new command in the sense like this, wow, radical idea. It was what he said after that. He said, a new command I give you, love one another in the way that I love you. Essentially saying, I'm no longer leaving it up to your autonomy to determine what does love look like. Because some of you will love the way I don't want you to love. So this is it. A new command I give you, love one another the way that I will, that I love you. Then he says something that is startling to me. It it, it sincerely is. And I, I hope you understand this as a follower of Christ. When Christ describes how people who are far from God will know you, it's not that you know every scripture. It's not that you read the King James or the NIV. It's not that you were raised in church, that you run 700 crews, that you give everything you have to the poor or the needy. You do all of these accolades and things. He doesn't say that. He said, people will know that you are my disciples by the way that you interact with one another. When you really think of that, you're like, oh, crap. You know, really? Really, the way that I love? Yes, the way that you selflessly serve the person next to you. The way that you care for people, the way that you honor people, the way that you walk with people. That's how people will know. It's fellowship. Fellowship means communion, communion with God and with one another. That's the essence of the Christian walk. Communion with God and with one another. Some of us seem to think, no, I just got communion with God. God didn't call you just to commune with Him. He called you to commune with one another. And I love the picture of that. In Acts chapter 2, it's, it's quite unique because when the early church started, um, it was just madness. It seemed like there was fear present at the beginning until the Holy Spirit ascended at Pentecost. And then it says that the Holy Spirit came in with power. Power. Power so that they would be witnesses for Christ. We know that word witness in the Greek is martorion. It comes from our word martyr. We know this. And what does it ultimately mean to be a witness for Christ? It means to die to yourself to honor God. You know what that means? It means emotions and feelings, though given by God and are healthy, they do not dictate your decision-making in life. They are acknowledged and you're like, thank you for your vote. But they don't make decisions. And too often in our life, we, we make decisions based upon how we feel and our emotions involved in it, not what's right. Can I just encourage you? Decide in advance. Decide in advance. We see this throughout the scriptures. Daniel did, it, did this before he was brought into captivity. He just determined in his heart, I will not defile my body by eating food that is that is dishonoring to God. I just determined in my heart and God made a way for that to be a reality. Joshua determined it as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No matter what transpires in this life, we will decide before. 
decide before so that when the emotions and the feelings come up, you say, hey, appreciate your, your vote in this, but um, I've already decided to honor God and to walk in those ways. This is what it says in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. This is the early church and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles and all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. When our church started to grow, I don't know if it was just because the church was growing, we started to get responses from some people saying, hey, you know what, we need to go back to the way that it was. And I was curious. I said, oh, what is this? What, what are we talking about? They said, we need to go back to the way that the church started. We need to go back to home church, home church. And, and I said, well, hey, I'm, if that's what the Bible says, I mean, what, what, do, what, what do you suggest? And they said, we just need to go back to, to the intimacy of home church the intimacy of home church. And I understood what they were getting at, but then I realized, I'm like, man, when I read my Bible, what you describe and then what the Bible describes are very different. Because after Peter preached his first message, 3,000 were added to the church. It's a lot of people. They all fit in one home. So much so that if you really want to get technical, if you want to model the early church, not only would you gather together in a home, but you would do it every day. So the people next to you every day in your home. I'm just saying, like, some of you are like, oh, that's a great idea. Is it a good idea? You know? What I'm suggesting to you is that sometimes when we read through Scripture and we identify methods that God used, we seem to elevate the method over the principle of content, which is that they were in one accord and they were united together in the same belief. And that should be the primary essence because what I've realized is it's not the size of the crowd that produces intimacy. It's the willingness of the heart. Because if that were true, marriages wouldn't continually, even in the church, end in divorce because it's the smallest group. It's the smallest family unit that exists. It should be the most intimate, yet it's not why an unwillingness to walk out the way that God has called us to walk. My friend, it's not the size of the church. It's the willingness of the heart of the people who belong to it. So I suggest, I'm, I'm submitting to you today. No one can coerce you to give of yourself to other people in a crew. You may be thinking, what will I get? Flip that. What could I give? What can I bring? What can I offer of myself? And I'm telling you, just like God always does, you'll go into it thinking, I'm going to help a young business owner. I'm going to help this person. And you come wanting to serve, and though you may serve, and that God will give back to you way more than you brought. That's how God does it. When we read the early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, we see a few things very quickly. We see that God builds, uh, fellowship builds friendships. Fellowship builds friendships, friendships that challenge, that encourage, friendships that lead. Jesus in John 15, 15 says, I no longer call you servants because servants don't know what's going on. I call you friends. I call you friends. 
He says, because everything the Father tells me, I've told you. You're no longer servants, you're my friends. And that's how we should be in a family. We should love each other and walk in friendship with one another. Fellowship builds unity. It builds unity. It strengthens us and our focus of the things of God. It learns how to deal with offense. It learns how to deal with forgiveness. It learns to give people space to recognize, hey, you know what? They they may not be where they need to be, but it's all right. Jesus is still on the throne. I'm still a child of heaven, and I'm going to do my best to walk with this person who may be in a difficult season. Do you know when people come, there's so many of us, and even there's so many of us who don't know what it looks like to be in family. They don't know what it looks like to have a father and a mother, brothers and sisters, a grandparent, grandfather or grandmother. They don't know what it looks like. They don't know how to receive direction. They don't know how to receive encouragement. What a place that we have that we can call family to commune with God and to commune with one another. It's a special thing from heaven. And I think maybe most, the most significant thing that fellowship produces in verse 47, listen to what it says. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The church did not strive to grow. They learned to love one another. And what happened when they learned to lo- love one another? God added to the growth. I think all this time we spend as church leaders trying to figure out how can we reach the greatest tool of evangelism is teaching the family of God how to love one another. Even in our division, in our disagreements, our misunderstandings, learning how to forgive and to love one another. I want to close with this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. You still with me? That was half of you, but I'm still going to read it anyway. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. I love this picture. Jesus is the cornerstone. It is the, it is the very thing cornerstones. From the cornerstone, you get everything. You get the level. You get the, the angle. You get the, the balance. Everything is built upon the cornerstone. If the cornerstone's off, everything is off. You see what it's saying? Christ is the cornerstone. Can I just say this? He never forces himself to be that. But he allows you to build upon it. A wise man will build his house upon the rock and a foolish man will build his house upon the sand. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. In him, the entire building, the whole building is joined together. Christ holds us together joins us together and the building rises to become a holy temple in the Lord and in him who in Jesus you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit what I love is his picture about how God uses us he takes the gifts and the talents that we have and he uses them to build the house and we each play our part we each do what God expects us, expects of us. Romans 12 says that for each of us has one body with many members 
And these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body. Listen to what this last part says. And each member belongs to all the other. Think of that. The person in front of you and behind you, all around you, your gift that you bring to the family belongs to them. And their gift to you so that we can be joined together to create a perfect harmony and unity to reflect the image of Jesus Christ here in this family. Not without fault, but a willingness to love in spite of it, a willingness to forgive. There's powerful things connected to that.